Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches from the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. All right, so we are going to jump into God's Word. John 14. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we're in John 14. And I titled the message this morning, Gospel Promises. Gospel Promises. Would you pray with me as, as we dive into God's Word? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your holy word. Lord, when we open the Bible, we are opening the very word of God, the words of God. Lord, you have spoken to us through Holy Scripture, and when we read it, we hear your voice. And I pray that under the sound of of my voice as I preach your word, that you would minister to every heart here this morning. And I pray especially this morning that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So broken, broken promises. Anybody had somebody break a promise to you? Unfortunately, as parents, sometimes we can make promises to our kids, and they don't keep, we don't keep the promise, not because we don't desire to keep promises, but sometimes kids don't understand that there are adult situations that might take place that would prevent us from keeping our promises. But, but as adults, there are often times where we want to do what we said we were going to do, and then we don't keep our promise. Or, or maybe you, you had promises that were not kept to you, uh, and, and you've lived with hurt and challenge and regret and, and difficulty in your life and broken promises. And when we think about broken promises, and I think about the title of my message, Gospel Promises, and the text that we're going to look at this morning, Gospel Promises, uh, Jesus is the only one who never breaks his promises. He's the only one who, when he gives a promise, you can take it to the bank. Now, his promises that he keeps in our life, they may not work out the way in which we think they should work out. That's often the case. God fulfills his promises towards us, and it may not happen in the way in which we would want it to happen or think it would happen, but we can rest assured according to God's knowledge, his perfect knowledge and his understanding, because he knows best and more than we do, that he always keeps his promises even when we don't understand. God never fails. He keeps his promises. And in our text this morning, in our text this morning, Jesus gives I would say probably some of the most profound promises that he gave to his disciples in all of Scripture. I mean, this is some amazing, staggering promises that he gives, some confusing promises. But he gives these promises to some weak, beleaguered, fearful men. This, if you remember, this is the upper room discourse. This is the upper room conversation that Jesus is having with his uh, 11 disciples before he goes to the cross. Jesus is just hours away from crucifixion, from betrayal, from arrest and crucifixion. And he's talking to these disciples. He's trying to prepare him, prepare them for this reality. And these men are confused. They are worried. These men will prove to be cowards in just hours from now. They will all flee. They will all run away. They will all abandon Jesus. And so these are the words that Jesus is going to speak. And these are the promises we're going to look at in John 14. But these are the men, the broken men, the beleaguered men, the the men that we see will be cowards. It's these men that he's going to talk to. And in some sense, we are all like those disciples, are we not? We're all weak. We all struggle, we all fail, we all don't have it together in many, many ways, but God gives us wonderful promises that he is with us. We're going to see some special ways 
in which he is with us. So let's look at our text. John 14, starting in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So, wow. You hear these promises? Did you catch them? Wow. That's all I can say is, wow. Jesus looked at these disciples and said, the works that I do, you will do. And even greater works will you do, because you go in my name. And then he says this, he says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do it that the Father may be glorified. And he doubled down. He said it again. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You know, those two verses right there, those three verses right there, 12 through 14, uh, are some of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the New Testament, those verses right there. Uh, One of the commentaries I was reading, kind of studying different perspectives on this section, one of the commentaries on the heading of John 14, 12 through 14, the heading said, puzzling words. That's how I felt all week as I was studying and thinking about this, we're going to do the works that Jesus did, and, and we're going to do gra- even greater works than what Jesus did. What Jesus, that's puzzling. What does that mean? But these verses, these verses are often misunderstood. They're often misapplied. And listen, and I believe misunderstood and misapplied like these verses have been and, 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 and unfortunately continue to be, they have kept many Christians under a heavy weight of condemnation because of misunderstanding and misapplication of these great gospel promises from our Lord. And so, even though they're misunderstood often, misapplied often, these verses are profound. They are profound gospel promises of Jesus to his disciples. So here's how we're going to look at it. Three gospel promises from our Lord. We're going to frame it like this. Whoever, whatever, wherever. Whoever, whatever, wherever. So let's look at the promises. Number one, whoever believes will join Christ in his work. Whoever believes will join Christ in his work. That's exactly the text, what it says in verse, four, in verse 12. Look at back at John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So these are puzzling words. Is Jesus saying that we're going to do the same works that he did? When he walked the earth, is that, is that what Jesus means here? I think the key to understanding this entire section right here are the words whoever and the word because. The words whoever and because. That's the key to understanding what Jesus is promising here. So whoever believes in me and then because I am going to the Father. Whoever believes in me and because I'm going to the Father. I think those phrases are the key to understanding what Jesus means here. So whoever believes in me, what, what, what does that mean? Whoever believes in me. I think it's pretty straightforward. Whoever believes in me means whoever believes in Jesus. That means all Christians. The word whoever believes means all Christians. So if you're a Christian here today, this is a promise for you. That whoever believes in me will do the works Jesus said that he did. So that's what it means. It means whoever. It means every Christian from all time in all generations, whoever believes will do the works that Jesus did. So it's pretty cut and dry there, right? Okay, so what does it mean because I go to the Father? 
Well, well, because I go to the Father, it's, it's pretty straightforward that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples that he's leaving. Now, again, they don't understand it. They're confused, and they, they, they don't understand what it means that he's going away. He's tried to tell them about his death, and they're still confused. But the reason that this is such a significant promise, the word because I'm going away, the phrase because I'm going away, it's because of what is going to happen after he goes away. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Look at John 16, 7. We'll get into this in a, in, in a month or two. It, it, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So who's the helper that Jesus is talking about here? The Holy Spirit will come to you. And you saw the Holy Spirit mentioned in our main text that we read a couple of minutes ago. So, so whoever believes will do the works. And because I'm going to the Father, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to come. The helper is going to come. So listen, the work of the Holy Spirit is central to understanding the promises of God in the life of the believer. The work of the Holy Spirit is central to understand the promises of God in the life of the believer. So here, here's what we have here. Because Jesus is going to the cross, because he will rise again and because he will ascend to the Father, here is the first promise that the Lord gives to his disciples. Here's the promise. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. So then the, the question we have to ask, we have a couple of questions to ask of this puzzling text. One of them is, well, what were the works that Jesus did? If we're going to do those works, what are the works? Well, if you remember last week, we talked about the works of Jesus, didn't we? He walked on water. He raised Lazarus from the dead, who was dead, four days. He fed a multitude, probably over 10,000 people. It says in the Gospels, he fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. So approximately 10,000 people were fed from the lunch of a boy that had five loaves and two fish. He multiplied food to feed thousands of people. He turned water into wine. And, and you could just go through the list of miracles. Actually, the Gospel of John says that if you, could, if you could number all of the miracles, if you could categorize all the miracles, John, John says, I, I, I suppose that there are not enough books in all of the world to house all of the works that Jesus did. These are the works that Jesus did. Now, what were the purpose of the works that Jesus did? We talked about this last week as well. John chapter 20, it says that the works that Jesus did the reason behind them, the walking on the water, the raising of the dead, the feeding of the 5,000 were all done so that people would believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. Said another way, the miracles, the works point to the deity of Jesus and the fact that he, came, that he alone has the power of eternal life. That's why Jesus did the works. Those, that's the purpose. So, Here's the other question, the obvious question. This, this is why it's puzzling. Here's the obvious question. Is this promise by Jesus saying that all believers, whoever believes, all believers will do the same miracles that he did when he walked the earth? That's the, that's the obvious question that I think about. It's the obvious question I think has been thought about since the birth of the church. Does that mean that we're going to do the same works that he did? And so here, here's a simple way to, to, to answer it, and, and we'll unpack it as we go along. If... The promise in John 14, 12, that if we believe in him, that we will do the same works that he did. If John 14, 12 is a promise that all believers will do the same works that Jesus did, then 
there have not been any genuine Christians since the resurrection. Just kind of take a deep breath and process that for a second. And somebody may say, well, well, I heard of somebody somewhere that raised a dead person. I heard of somebody somewhere, somewhere in a foreign country that did this or did that. Yeah, but the text says that all believers, whoever is a believer, will do the same works. Will do the same works. So if that's the case, that's what it means, that we're going to walk on water, that we're going to turn water into wine, that we're going we're to raise men that are four days dead. If that's what it means, then, then I would say, if you look at church history, uh, that really you, you might could say that salvation stopped with the apostles. Because you can look at the book of Acts and you can see that the apostles did miracles. But after that, in, in our lived experience here as well, I haven't seen any of you walk on water. We could go try if you want. <laughs> I saw, I, I, I got a video from a church member of, of him uh, kneeboarding on some bayou water. I was a little nervous about the bayou water, all the bacteria and snakes that might be in there. But he was kneeboarding, right? But he wasn't walking on the water. So again, is this what Jesus means? Is this the promise? Is, is this promise saying that all believers, whoever leads, will do the same miracles? And so another scripture to consider, I think when you try to interpret puzzling scriptures, uh, it's important that you interpret scripture with scripture, okay? So you got to look at other places that try to help us understand this. So I think a one scripture that's important that helps us to understand what this means is 1 Corinthians 12. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, talking about Holy Spirit gifts and miracles. 1 Corinthians 12, 29 says, are, are all apostles, the apostle Paul is saying, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? So what, what is Paul asking here? These are rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is that not all are apostles. You, you know, there's been no apostle since the last apostle died. The criteria to be an apostle is that you would see the living Jesus. So there's nobody alive since the last apostles died that could say that they're an apostle. Are all apostles? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Right? So, so based upon what we see here in 1 Corinthians 12, to, to, to believe that we are to do the same miracles, I think, is, is not biblically accurate. The obvious answer is no. This scripture combined with our text helps us to understand that Jesus is not saying that it should be expected that every believer, anyone who believes, will work miracles. Now, a caveat here. Our whole faith is founded upon miracles, right? Upon a miracle. The miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so we believe in miracles. Actually, God can do miracles today, right now. The, the, the book of James says that if there's any sick among you, to call for the elders of the church and to, to anoint them with oil and to pray the prayer of faith and to believe and to pray that God can do a miracle because he can. That's not the point. The point of this, and this is what I think happens when this is talked about, people will say, well, Pastor Ben doesn't believe in miracles. Are you kidding me? I believe that Jesus was dead for three days and rose out of the grave. I believe that if I prayed right now and God so chose he could heal anyone in here that has cancer, that has any disease. He could heal any, any malady that you have, any issue you have. He can do it because he's God, and he calls us to pray. That's what we said earlier. What are, we, are, we are called to bring our anxieties before the Lord, to cast them upon the Lord. But that's not the question. The question is, is are we going to do the same miracles that Jesus did? The answer 
The answer is no, biblically. I, I have to be pastoral with you. That's not, that's not true. And to believe, listen, to believe that we should be able to perform the same miracles like Jesus did when he walked the earth is to live under a pressure in your Christian life that you were never intended to live under because there's only been one Jesus who could walk on water. There's only been one Jesus who's had power over nature, who could look at a storm and could calm it, who could look at water and turn it into wine. You guys following me? And there are Christians today who live under this pressure, and they believe, they believe that because they're not walking in the works that Jesus did, then they are not the Christians they're supposed to be. And something, another thing to think about here, after all, when we think about the miracles that Jesus did, If you read the Gospels, think about this just for a moment. Jesus did miracles in Judea for three and a half years. It is said, some theologians will say, that sickness was vanquished in Judea for three and a half years because Jesus was walking the earth. He healed everyone. The only place he couldn't heal anyone was in his hometown because they didn't believe in him. After three and a half years of miracle after miracle after miracle, they killed him. There was no one left who believed. No one left who believed. And in fact, the crowds cried out for his crucifixion. There were some who believed. There were some that, who believed, but it was a handful. The rest turned against him. I think about the crowd, and you look at the Gospels, and the crowd was crying out to crucify Jesus, to crucify him. Do you want Barabbas to be released to you, or do you want Jesus to be released to you? Barabbas was a, a convicted murderer, Jesus was innocent, and the crowd said, crucify Jesus. And I can only imagine, I believe that in that crowd of the Jews that were crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus, there were some in that crowd that he had healed. There were some in that crowd who on that day when they needed lunch and there was no food, that he took the five loaves and the two fish and he multiplied them. They were in that crowd, and yet they turned and they said, crucify him. Something to consider. And some Christians, this is what they ask, and this is what they think. I I heard a preacher say uh, uh, during my study time, I was listening to different preachers who interpret this section differently. There was a man named, I'm just going to say his name because I don't believe it's somebody I want you to listen to or you shouldn't listen to. His name is Todd White. And Todd White was preaching to a a group of Christians in a a church conference, and, and he was looking at them, and he said this. He said, he said, don't think about greater works. Don't think about doing greater works. We're not even doing the works that Jesus did. And when I heard it, my heart was grieved over the pressure and the condemnation that Christians live under. Some Christians live their Christian life, their entire life, believing that they've never reached a high enough level of spirituality because they don't see the miracles that Jesus did. And here's what they may say, we're not seeing the works because we don't believe enough, because we don't have enough faith, or because we have to reach a higher level in our Christian life. As a pastor, you know what changed my view on this? One of the things other than scripture, primarily that changed my view, is sitting at the bedside of cancer patients that are dying, and that are Christians, and have been praying for healing. You sit at a bedside of a person dying of cancer, it will impact your perspective about this subject where that family is believing and praying the prayer of faith, whoever believes. And they believe, but God says, no, I'm not going to heal them now. They're a Christian. They're going to be with me. I'm going to heal them later. 
Some Christians live under that weight and that pressure. I don't have enough faith. You even have people, churches, who will have what they call schools of supernatural ministry, and they'll teach people to do miracles as if that's possible. You can teach somebody to do a miracle. It breaks my heart to see the pressure and the guilt that people live under because of bad understanding, because of bad teaching. Okay, are you guys ready to pivot? I think I'm ready to pivot. I think I've, I've rocked the boat a little bit. You guys okay? You're still hanging with me? Here's the truth. Listen, because we got to get out of here before lunch. Here's the truth. The truth is believers are called to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to take part in the greatest miracle that can ever take place, the salvation of someone who is dead in their sin. That is the work. This is the work that Christ came to do. Listen, listen. Christ did not come to do miracles. He didn't come to do miracles. He came to die on a cross. That's the point of Christianity, is that he would die on a cross to absorb the punishment that we deserve for our sin. That's why he came. That's the purpose and he is calling us to join him in that gospel work. Believers are called to preach that gospel, the salvation of the lost, and this is the work that he came to do, and this is the work that all who believe will take part in. I, I, love, I love this section of Scripture. This kind of illustrates this reality that this is the work that we're called to join Christ in. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is so profound. The apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, in Christ, God is, is reconciled. He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And listen to this. Listen, this is how we join Christ in his work of redemption, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen, this is, this is hard to understand. God making his appeal through us. Think about that. If there, there's no greater way that you can join the work of Christ than him making his appeal to a lost world to be reconciled to him. He uses us. We are ambassadors, and this is what we say. We implore you on behalf of of Christ be reconciled to God. Do you see it? Whoever believes will do the works that I do. And so we implore people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's amazing that God would ever use us as his representative. It's nothing but a mercy. It's nothing but a mercy that we could ever represent God. So, so, the, so listen, the Lord doesn't build his church through physical miracles or signs and wonders. That's not how he builds his church. It, 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 you don't see that in, in Scripture primarily. It, it, those, those point to a greater reality, absolutely, and we pray that God would do miracles. But God doesn't build his church through miracles. How does he build his church? He builds his church through a message. It's a message. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul again. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Listen, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews, they demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But what do we do? 
we preach Christ crucified. So our message is a message of the crucified Savior who died in the place of sinners and rose again for their justification. That's our message. Okay, so that's, that's my interpretation of the works. That's what I believe it means that we're going to do the works. We're going to join him as ambassadors to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are the greater works? What does it even mean? We're going to walk on more water than Jesus? We're going to raise a man that was dead eight days instead of four? We're going to turn more water into wine? Is that what it means, greater works? No, I don't believe it means that's what it means, greater works. Just to touch on it real quickly before we move on, I think one scripture it, it illustrates what the greater works mean. Acts 2, 41, the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, died on the cross, raised from the dead. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that, that day about 3,000 souls. In one message, 3,000 people got saved. And Jesus, when he walked the earth, never saw 3,000 people came, come to faith in one sermon. In fact, he saw the opposite. Everyone left him. His closest betrayed him and denied him. So the greater works, what are the greater works? Three ways the works have become greater. Real quickly, greater geographically. Jesus never preached outside of ancient Palestine. Greater geographically. What does the, the Great Commission say? That we should spread the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the world, and it ended up here in Shriver, Louisiana. Greater geographically. Greater ethnically. Jesus said he came only to the lost sheep of Israel. But now every tongue, tribe, nation, every, every race can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and can be born again. Greater numerically, uh, greater geographically, greater ethnically, and greater numerically. That's the way in which the works are greater. Amen? So the first gospel promise of our Lord is that we who believe get to join him in the greatest work that can ever happen. The salvation of someone's soul for eternity. Whoever believes, whoever, now whatever, all right, we got, I'm sorry, we, I, that took me longer than I expected. Hang in there, I'm sorry, guys. If you come back next Sunday, it won't be this long, okay? <laughs> whoever, whatever, whatever. It's just a hard text. It's a hard text. So whoever, now whatever a believer asks in Christ's name will be accomplished. Look at the next verses. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. This is another spectacular promise from God. Whatever you ask, I'll do it. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. So I think to help in understanding what this means about prayer, if ask anything in his name, he'll do it. I think we, we, we have to start by talking about what it obviously doesn't mean. That helps very often. What does this obviously not mean? Well, here's two common false perspectives about prayer that can happen in church. Here's the, the first one that, that I see. Prayer becomes a system to be used to get whatever I want, right? To get whatever I want. Some people call it, name it, claim it. You know, I just say it, I speak it, I pray it, and God will give me whatever I want. I want a new boat, I want a new house, I want a better job, I want a pay raise. And God said, Jesus said, if I pray and I say in his, pray in his name, that he'll give me whatever I want. And that's a false perspective of prayer. Prayer is a system to be used to get whatever I want. The, another false perspective is to use the name of Jesus in prayer it guarantees success. So the name of Jesus becomes this superstitious formula. Like if I say, I pray, pray, I pray, Lord, we ask that you do this, this, and this, and in the name of Jesus. You gotta make sure you say in the name of Jesus because if you don't say in the name of Jesus, it's not, you're not gonna get what you ask for. The name of Jesus becomes superstitious. Trying to use the name like of Jesus like it's a magic formula, I believe it's blasphemous. It's not a magic formula. Look at, look at Acts 8 real quickly. Simon, a magician, gets saved. 
And he sees the power of God at work through the apostles. And he, he wants to buy the power. Listen to this. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You are neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. The name of Jesus is not a magic tool. It's not a genie in the bottle. It's not, prayer is not to get whatever we want from God. And in these false beliefs about prayer, God becomes a servant of man to do his will instead of man becoming a servant of God to do his. That's a false view of prayer. Clearly, we, we see this promise from the Lord is not a blank check for us to get what, from God whatever we desire. God is not turning over his sovereignty to us. He's not asking us to run the universe. There's only one that can do that. So what does it mean? I think, so here's, here's let's unpack what it means in, in my name. So whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Look, what does it mean in my name? Here's, here's what I believe it means. If you ask anything in my name, it, it means in alignment to or in accordance with God's redemptive purposes in the earth. When you ask anything in alignment with and in accordance with God's redemptive purposes in the earth, he's going to do it. So prayers said a different way. Prayers that are prayed in the name of Jesus are prayers that are in alignment with seeing the work of Christ that we talked about earlier, expounded and expanded for the glory of his name. That's what it means. Warren Wiersbe puts it like this. I think this makes it clear for us. To ask anything of the Father in the name of Jesus means that we ask what Jesus would ask. What would please him? What would bring him glory by furthering his work? When a friend says to you, you may use my name, he is handing you a great privilege as well as a tremendous responsibility. I think that makes it clear for us. A couple of things I think about when Jesus' disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray. What does Jesus, what does he lead with? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, humility and reverence before God. And then what does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's modeling prayer for the, for the disciples. He taught them to pray. Then he modeled it right before he went to the cross. They're sleeping, but he's praying. What does he say? He says, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. That's prayer. God, I submit to your will. Prayer is not a formula. Praying in Jesus' name is not magic. Prayer is not a means to get whatever I want from God. Prayer is not a quarter we place in a celestial vending machine. Okay? Now, flip side. We are called to pray, Thessalonians says, about everything. We're called to pray about everything to be thankful in prayer about everything, to cast all of our anxieties over onto the Lord. So we are called to pray about everything, and we come with our sicknesses, we come with our burdens, we come with our anxieties, but we come with open hands. Prayer is open hands. 
and not clench fists and pointed fingers. God, do this and you have to do that and I I command you to do this and and do this in Jesus' name and if I say it like that, it's gonna happen. No, prayer is open-handedness before a God who is in control and we submit our will to his will and we say, God, it is our desire that you would heal this cancer. It is our desire that that you would provide abundantly financially. It is our desire, but we come with open hands. We surrender to a God who we trust explicitly to do what is best in our lives, even better than what we can ever imagine or think. And even when it doesn't happen the way we would want it to happen, we come to God with trust. So four evidences real quick that we are praying according to the will of God. Here's just, you can jot these down. They'll be on the screen. When we pray, we pray for his fame and not yours, not ours. We pray because he's worthy. We pray on the basis of the gospel, and we pray open-handed in submission to God's wisdom and understanding. So when you pray this way, here, this will help wrap it all up for us. This will help bring it together before we close here. When you pray this way, you have everything you need to live the Christian life for the glory of God. And this is the point that Jesus is making to his disciples in John 14. Follow this. Jesus is saying, because I'm going away, you will continue my work. Because I'm going away, you'll continue my work. And the scope and the impact on earth will even be greater than what I have. And as you go in my name, you will not lack anything you need to fulfill the gospel plans I have for you. That's what we've seen so far. Whoever believes will be about the work that Christ came to fulfill. Whatever that believer who's about kingdom work needs, it will be given them because they go in his name. And lastly, wherever. Whoever, whatever, wherever. Wherever a believer goes, they are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at the next promise. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Wow. I know there's a lot of content. We're almost done. What a promise. He says, you're going to do the same works that I do, the same gospel of redemption. You're going to be about that, and and I'm going to be with you, and you're going to pray when you go in my name, and I'm going to back you up. I'm going to back you up. I'm going to be with you. And and even though I'm going away, here's, here's one of the greatest promises. I'm sending another helper. I'm sending another helper. The Holy Spirit's going to, he, he's going to be in you. He, he, he has been with you, but he will be in you. Another helper, empowerment for gospel service. So what does it mean, helper? The word helper here, describing the Holy Spirit, is the word parakletos. And it means this, advocate, comforter, counselor. The word para means alongside. The word kletos means to call. So Paracletos is an advocate. The Holy Spirit is an advocate, a comforter, a counselor. And he comes alongside when we call. When we call, he comes alongside. He comforts, he supports. He is our advocate. He is our counselor. The idea of the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit, is someone you call to come alongside you in your defense, to comfort, to counsel. And this is the Holy Spirit's function in the life of every believer. Every believer, whoever believes, will have the Holy Spirit. Every believer will be Spirit-filled. The promise of the Holy Spirit's filling and empowerment is for all believers. It's for all believers. 
I have to say this, there can be an unhealthy and false dichotomy in the body of Christ. It's been like this for many years. I'm going to poke a little bit more. You can you stand a little bit more poking? Just, just one more time, if you let me, one more time. It's the idea that there are believers who are spirit-filled and those who are not. In some circles, the body of Christ, has, they sadly fall into believing that some believers have more access to the Holy Spirit than others. It creates class levels within the body. You've got spirit-filled Christians, spirit-filled churches, and non-spirit-filled churches. And I would say that every non-spirit-filled church is not a church. It's a room full of non-believers. Why? Because every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit and has all of him. Has all of him. You, you've heard the term spirit-filled or, or, or terms full gospel. You go to a full gospel church. What, what, what's a half gospel church? Some even say, we have a half gospel church. I don't have a half gospel church. We have all the Holy Spirit. We have all the gospel. We are fully empowered to do all the work through the power of the Spirit. The, the responsibility we have with the work of the Spirit is what Paul says in Ephesians when he says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a continual present tense. It means that we are to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. What that means is, is that we are to continually live in our life surrendered to the Holy Spirit more than we are to our flesh. But he doesn't leave us. He's with us. We surrender more or less to him at different times in our life. The goal is that we would be fully surrendered to the power of the Spirit all the time. But there's no non-filled Christian. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. So let's do away with that term. All Christians are Spirit-filled and all are full gospel. The biblical truth is that every believer is filled. Notice, notice it, it, I think the key is in what Jesus said in John 14. The Father will give you another helper whom the world cannot know. That's the key. He says the world cannot know the Holy Spirit. But what's the opposite mean? It means that all the Christians will. The world cannot know, but you know him, for he dwells with you now, and he will be in you. Notice what 2 Peter 1 says. This is the promise of the Spirit's indwelling and empowerment. Listen to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things that we need for life and for godliness. All of it residing in every believer here right now. Listen, Scripture says the same power that raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you. How does that power dwell in you as a believer? Through the Holy Spirit. That same power, think about that for a moment. Resurrection power lives in you as a Christian. Makes you think about what you're watching and what you're saying and who you're hanging out with, right? A little bit if you're a Christian. Same resurrection power. So, what a great promise. Listen, let's summarize here. Jesus is saying, I, I'm going to be calling you to join me in the work of spreading the good news about what I'm about to accomplish on the cross. And, and when you pray according to my name and my will, I'm going to back you up. You can count on it. And I will send a helper to you, the Holy Spirit, and he will dwell in you, and he will empower you, and you will be my witnesses. And it happened. Remember the text I read earlier in Acts 2? You remember the day of Pentecost, the weak, beleaguered, cowardly, 
disciples who ran and fled when Jesus was arrested. Do you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? Peter stood up and he boldly declared the gospel of Jesus Christ and he called those that were guilty, guilty. And 3,000 people were saved that day. Why? Because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And as believers today, every believer since the day of Pentecost, when they confess Christ, they receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. All of them for gospel mission. You lack nothing if you're a believer. You have all that you need. And you can be bold witnesses too. So, three gospel promises for all who, who, who what? Three gospel promises for all who believe. So, the question is, I've been preaching to Christians here this morning, the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? There may be someone here today, you think, Pastor Ben, I've been listening to you preach and kind of been a little confused about all the language you're saying and I don't really understand. It's a simple question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he lived a sinless life, that he died a criminal's death, and then on the third day he was, ro- he was raised to newness of life so that you can be forgiven of your sins? Do you believe that? Because the promise to those who believe is that you can be forgiven and that you can become a child of God. You can be forgiven of all of your sins. Some of you here today, maybe you've come into this building and you've carried on your shoulders a heavy weight of guilt and, and, and condemnation and, and guilt over the past sins of your life. You come in here and you, you're carrying that baggage and you don't know what to do with your guilt. The decisions that you've made, you come in today, if you will believe in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven your past can be cleansed, and you can be a new creation in Christ. And the call is simply what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10. Here's how you are born again. If you will believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he was raised from the dead, it says if you will believe in your heart and you will confess that with your mouth, you will be born again. You will be, become a Christian. You will be made brand new. So anyone and everyone who has never done that, you can do that today. You can be born again. Amen? Three gospel promises to all who believe. Whoever believes will do the same and greater works. Whatever is asked in alignment with the mission of Christ, whatever that believer, wherever that believer goes, he or she has been given all of the Holy Spirit to dwell in them for gospel ministry. Amen? Amen. So I end with this story. During battle in the Pacific in World War II, this is a true story. During battle in the Pacific in World War II, a sailor on a U.S. submarine was stricken with acute appendicitis. No surgeon on board. The sailor's temperature had reached 106 degrees. The man's only hope was operation. And a, fellow, a fellow sailor said to the stricken man, the nearest doctor is days away. He said, but I've watched doctors do it. And I think, I think I can do the same work. I think I can do the same work. So in the makeshift operating room with gauze for masks and alcohol drained from torpedoes as the antiseptic and a broken handled scalpel, it took 20 minutes for the shipmate to find the appendix digging in the flesh. Sorry for that graphic image. Two and a half hours later, the last stitch was sewed 
as the last drop of ether ran out. And 13 days later, the soldier was back to work. So, so listen, it's going to tie it all back in for us. Listen, follow it. The operation was not done by a trained surgeon in a modern operating room, but was done rather by a relatively untrained man under the most difficult circumstances. The trained surgeon says to us, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the same works that I do. So here's, here's how we end. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us, we do the same works as Jesus. And listen, and there is a sense in which they are greater works than his works because of the humble and frail nature of the instruments. The same power that through Jesus brought regeneration to, and life to many flows through us. And the same wisdom that brought healing to the most fragmented relationships is operable in us. And the same miraculous love that brought life to impossible situations resides in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.